You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Amazing. Oh, man. So good. Thank you, Bryce. Um, Now I I can't yell anymore. Um, yeah, so it, it's just so good. So it's so awesome to, uh, to be able to sit here and just steep ourselves in Galatians. And um, instead of doing like a full recap of everything, uh, you guys can go back and listen if there's uh, stuff you've missed. But there are two people groups that Paul has been writing to. He's been writing to the church. So it's multiple churches in an area of Galatia. So the church of Galatia. But there's kind of two people groups that make up it, these churches. There's mixed groups, right? Jews and Gentiles, okay? And so to the Gentiles, he's been having this message to them. Paul has been brilliantly writing one letter to a mixed group of people using some Jewish language, also encouraging the Gentiles in their language. So the Gentiles, he's kind of given this, them this encouragement. You were once pagan, believing and following in however you were brought up, following kind of the, quote, gods of your household, and you didn't know any different. But now you've heard of the God of Israel because of the Son, Jesus Christ. This Son came to earth, atoned for the sins of all who would believe in God as salvation, and has offered now a new life in the Spirit. You now, Gentiles, are welcomed into that fully upon your belief that Jesus is Lord. This doesn't make you Jewish, this makes you Christian a follower in the way of Jesus. So for a Gentile, they'd be like, oh, no way. We get to be included in this. This is crazy. Likewise to the Jews. This is the message to them. You are the people of promise. Yes, you were a people with a way of life set over you known as the law. This law was to reveal to you your sin so that you could show the world what it meant to repent and turn back to God, not continue to live in sin. But now through Christ Jesus, God has done what he'd said he'd do through the prophets of old. He has put his law inside of you now and given you his spirit. And this gift is not because you are Jewish, but for all those who believe. This does not make you less Jewish. This just makes you Christian, a follower in the way of Jesus. Do you see that, how he's writing one letter, but it's bringing the two together? It's brilliant. And for both now, as we looked a few weeks ago, they both have this firstborn right to the inheritance that God is giving them. Not kind of Jews as like the older brother and Gentiles, the younger, who kind of just get like the scraps, right? But both firstborn level right in God's kingdom. And this is because of the great promise to Abraham, not just that Israel would be blessed, but that then it would become a blessing to the whole world, to all the nations. And as we looked last week, this blessing is not just hereditary by DNA, right? Because Abraham had two sons, if you go back in that story, but only one of the sons was of the promise of God. One son born out of the slave woman, which represented man-made promises and essentially trusting in the flesh to carry out what was considered right. The other son was born out of promise because God alone made it happen. Abraham and Sarah could not produce what only God could produce in them. And that's the whole idea that the promise was not something man could just do, but had man had to receive 
and then bless the world with what they had received. So Paul ends last chapter with grouping all Christians together in unity in this area of Galatia and concluding in chapter 431. It says, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And it's such a beautiful picture for them. And again, some of the language gets lost, but you can go last week and the week before and learn more about that. But chapter 5 is quickly and has been a favorite chapter of mine. I don't know if you've dove into chapter 5 very much, but it is so rich in Galatians. And chapter 5 kind of picks up with this question. Okay, we've been arguing this. We're there. We're, we're in it. We understand this stuff. But the question kind of means, so then what does it mean to be people of the free woman, to be a people of freedom in Christ. What does that really mean? Now, real quick before we get into it, the funny thing is with kind of the popularity uh, of the form of, of Christian deconstruction that you often see these days, I don't know if you have friends or maybe yourself kind of going through that, um, if you ask many people who said they did follow Christ, but now they don't, there's usually a great sense of heavy burden and weight they felt with their Christianity, right? Following Jesus was not easy. His yoke was not light at all. This was heavy and hard, and it felt like a big weight was on us. And this bums me out. It should (laughs) bum you out. I think it bums Jesus out. But I get it at some level, because sometimes it can feel like a lot, and especially when we translate it kind of into our American mindset too, like we love to accomplish things. Like we love to crush it, you know? Um, So Christianity can quickly become kind of a way to a better life, which is much more about self-help than allegiance to Jesus. And I want to acknowledge, just before I get into anything, that like there's very real church hurt. There's very real weights and burdens that the church has put on people through teachings or through activities or whatever, and those are very real. But it sounds like a lot of people were raised in the law of Christianity but not the heart of God and the freedom of following Jesus and experiencing the Spirit of God flowing in and through them. And this is what makes it different than religion. This is relationship with a living God, not just following Allah. And this is what Christians have been freed up to experience. So let's get into it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Paul encourages the church. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Man. We should just walk away. That's so good. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So verse 1, it's really like the conclusive statement for Paul about pretty much the previous four chapters of Galatians. Remember, this was a letter originally read in its entirety without chapter breaks. Like we in English, we have done that uh, probably because we just can't handle (laughs) that many run-on sentences. But the letter has been arguing that the great children of promise that God is going to use to change the whole world are those who have faith that Jesus Christ is Lord and therefore enter into one family under that Abrahamic covenant blessing. Not just Jews, not just Gentiles, but together as one people under one God. Now, he uses the word yoke here, and it's kind of a classic Bible term and has this a picture, I put it up here, of an actual yoke guiding an oxen, pulling a cart, uh, or, or in farming, Right? One misconception when you look at that picture is that this is like imprisonment. Like, oh, like those animals, they should be set free. Like the yoke should be taken off and they could be set free, right? It's some kind of shackle to break free of. 
But this was not the understanding of the use of yoke in, in Bible times, right? Yoke in biblical language, it means way or teaching, okay? Not like a harness or a shackle, but way or teaching. So it's the joining together of oneself to a particular way of life. And Paul is saying, don't go back to that joining together of what was actually slavery, but rather experience life and join yourself with God that is truly life. Be so connected with him that you're like that close, doing life with God in the spirit. And Paul, remember, he's a trained debater as a Pharisee. Like this guy knows how to argue. His rhetoric is something special, and he has more to point out. He's been arguing for the last couple of chapters on the positive side to these Christians in Galatia, both Jew and Gentile, of them not turning to the practices of the law as the marker of their faith, but allowing to be marked by the Spirit of God, compelling them and shining through them. But here, it's interesting, he goes on the negative side. I'm kind of a worst-case scenario person. Like, I love to just be like, all right, well, let's play it out and, like, you know, say silly things or whatever. But he kind of goes on like the negative side. He flips it over to the Gentiles specifically, right? And he says, okay, all right, fine. Let's just tease this out real quick. If you want to convert to Judaism, if you really believe that this is the only way that you can follow God, and if you, if you want to believe this falsehood, moving towards slavery, not freedom, then here's the teaching on it, okay? He says, look, okay, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Remember, they were saying that they have to be circumcised in order to follow God. If you accept that, if you accept going back to this law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So here's the truth if you pick that path. If you want to follow the law, then you're choosing the law to be your master. The law is what you are yoked with, okay? God used to be the master of his law to the Jews, and if they followed the law, they followed God. That was the old covenant. That was the old way of it. But now God, through Jesus Christ, has moved away from the law, no longer requires the law, but faith that Jesus fulfilled the law with his life, death, and resurrection. So going back to the law, there's no God behind it. The law that no one could ever follow perfectly, by the way, is in itself the master, judge, jury, and often executioner, right? But Paul continues by saying, okay, so if you want that then, and this is a brutal statement, verse 4, you are severed from Christ. Sit in that. You are cut off from Christ if that's what you want. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Yikes. Like, if it's the law you want, then it's only the law you get. Good luck. (laughs) Paul's like, you're telling me that you would look at the grace of Jesus Christ that is offered to free you up to live through the Spirit by faith, not stressfully according to every rule of the law, and you're going to say no to that? Well, then go for it, but you are severed from Christ. But Paul, he goes a little bit in the negative, but now he's going to turn it a little bit back because it's starting to get a little heavy, right? Paul brings it back to those who would reject this idea, right? Both Jew and Gentile not wanting to return the law say, no, we don't want to go back to that. We want to be under grace. We want to be in the freedom that God wants for us. So verse 5, 
Paul says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The hope for righteousness is not based on the perfect following of the law. That really can't be done, so therefore God's people could never be righteous on their own efforts. But the Christian hope for righteousness before God is faith that what the Spirit is doing in and through the Christian, forming and shaping them into the proper people of God, is exactly what God wants for them. That is the way of Christ Jesus, being fully surrendered to God's work through the Spirit in his people that will be evident in how they love one another. Those are the markers for the Christian faith. Verse 7, Paul has kind of a pastoral note here. You can kind of hear the exasperation a little bit in his voice. You were running well. Remember, he helped plant these churches. He taught these people the gospel. They accepted it. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? All right, this is very pastoral for Paul. He's not just this bullheaded apostle that comes in and just, you know, regularly debates everybody. He's also a shepherd, right? He is, he's a, kind of a prophet in this day of traveling, this apostle. They were doing so well when they first heard the gospel, when they heard and saw and believed in Jesus as the Christ, planted these churches, welcomed their neighbors in. They were so free in that, and now they're making it some religion of works, like Paul wants to make it clear that it is not according to God's word, Christ's likeness, or what God is asking them to do. Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Like this is man-made. This is not from the Lord. But we all know how this kind of insidious thinking lodges itself into like the nooks and crannies of community, right? And it kind of festers its way in. Paul puts it this way, verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just think about it like it's an unnoted, uh, unnoticed and tolerated at first, just a little bit of whether it's poor teaching, you know, whether it's some, some kind of theology that comes in or some doctrine or just peep things that we do, right? We're, as a cohort, um, we're working through um, like gospels that are counterfeit, things that, that sound good, but actually they kind of take away from Jesus, make it more about religion, right? These things that come in and then they start to grow, and before you know it, your whole community is kind of contaminated by this, by this wrong whatever it is, right? But Paul, by the encouragement of his letter and the people getting back to the faith they had in the first place, says this, verse 10, But I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So this is really fascinating. Scholars believe that Paul is kind of vague here on purpose. Like we know from context that there are these Judaizers that are kind of uh, at fault for trying to make these communities, try to, try to uh, um, make them into Jewish people, saying this is, there's only one way, this is the way you got to do it, this kind of thing, right? But instead, um, Paul, he's, he's kind of saying this very generically, like the one who is against you. And I think it's actually profound. He's bringing up a much bigger spiritual issue as well. Like we know today, and they knew then, but also needed to be reminded, there's also 100% of spiritual warfare going on, right? The leader of the rebellion against God was given the title Satan. The title means adversary, 
literally against, you know? Like simply put, the enemy is against what God is trying to bring together. God has always been about one unified people, undivided, unspoiled, and undeterred in their devotion to him. But what happens over and over and over again, we don't even need the histories of the scriptures to say what we experience in our own life. There's infighting. There's conflict within the family, division over worship, do's and don'ts in the church, even arguing about how to follow God. What does that look like? Who can do it? Who cannot do it? like bringing divisions, all these things could absolutely be enemy-influenced. And Paul is being generic because he knows this is a battle we are in. But church, Jesus already won. Amen? Jesus won. The pressures and the weight of all those enemies against God, the flesh, the world, the devil, like whatever God feels, it feels like a lot. But Jesus took that weight to the cross already. And he pronounced death to have no claim on him or anyone that he gives life to. Paul concludes in this section, verse 11, but if I, brothers, I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So one thing that's easy to forget, and I I was reminded of this last week from studying this, is Paul is, he's not demonizing Jewish practices right? Paul's not saying that like all Gentile ways are healthy and good and, and you know, J- Jewish practices are bad or whatever. He's actually saying both sides of the spectrum have beauty in their diversity and expression of their cultures and who they are, and both sides have things and beliefs they need to move away from. He's saying these practices no longer have any merit and righteousness with God that is found in Christ alone. Paul is actually a fan of circumcision when it fits the circumstance, particularly in Jewish life and practice. He would probably not, likewise, encourage a Gentile to be circumcised, right? This was a dichotomy of like, be who you are and live in community with each other and love one another in your differences, finding common ground in Jesus as Lord. But these falsehoods are being brought against Paul that he also teaches in circumcision. And Paul says, well, I'm not saying that that's how you gain righteousness, but if you truly believe that I was, then why are you persecuting me? You want me to say this, right? Obviously, these are false accusations. But the real falsehood are those who not only reject Jesus and the cross, but are actually offended by it. I don't know if you ever heard that term, the offense of the cross, you know, we like, we love to wear like the necklaces and like have cross tattoos and like all that stuff, but the offense of the cross. Like think about like all the previous things that were of the people of God. Ceremonies, feasts, sacrifices, like anything that symbolized religious merit-based salvation. Those were all because of the law, right? The law told the people to do these things so that they could get back right standing with God. But we know, and Paul told us, just a few pages earlier, the whole point of the law was because of sin. Galatians 3.19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. The law was added because sin was happening and people weren't recognizing it. In fact, even seeing what was evil as good. The law was added so that sin could be plainly seen for what it was. But then this gospel 
this gospel, this good news who Jesus Christ came that opened the eyes of anyone who has been blind to their own sin, caught up in their own glory to see their sin clearly and plainly. Except now, what was held up in front of them as a mirror was not the law, it was a cross. A cross with a sacrifice on it. A cross with a Messiah on it, taking what sin Uh, taking that sin that so utterly defeats us when we see it clearly, taking that sin to its death. And then in victory, Jesus rose, resurrects, and says that his followers can have the same spirit within them that will allow them to see their sin clearly and then believe in Christ's actions on the cross to be the basis for their salvation. This is beautiful, and this is offensive to the natural way of mankind. Like in general, we, all, we say we love grace, but it can be often offensive to our flesh. You know, human nature, like the very core of it is like it's one of survival, pushing boundaries, becoming stronger and better in our lifetime. What did the great theologian Kelly Clarkson say? Like, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, right? <laughs> I'd sing it for you, but you know, my throat, it just... <clears> throat> But for our Messiah to say, hey, I love you, but you are wholly unequipped and unable to ever better your relationship with God through any action. Like, you have been made a wretch by sin and wicked before the Lord. But instead of destruction, we want you to see your sin for what it is, come humbly with a bowed knee, and allow us to heal you and remake you from the inside out. Does that sit well with you? Is that offensive? Is there a little bit, you feel that tug sometimes of like, well, yeah, but like I can offer something, right? Like that's a little pretentious, God. Like I'm not that bad, you know? Like next week we'll get into this a lot more when we talk about the life of the flesh versus life in the spirit, which is so rich. But as kind of a teaser, the Greek word flesh is sarks which has this kind of deeper meaning of our animalistic appetites, right? The things our bodies just naturally, animalistically, like without reason, crave. And not all bad, right? Some are beautiful and life-giving, right? But often, all other cravings are often contrary to what we even know to be true or good for us. These cravings are what are at war with this new spirit that God wants to remake us with. But today, Paul is saying, I'm not teaching anything different than the gospel, and I'm not going to change just because some find that cross offensive. In fact, he thinks that's good, and he gets super fiery here, and I love it. Verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Yeah, whoo, shots fired. The the NKJV KJV says, "I, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek statement, right? If they love circumcision so much, then just like, why not go all the way? Like, just cut it all off, right? Right? This is obviously like a hyperbolic visual, but could mean more than just the physical act here, right? The, the phrasing, and that's why I like the KJV, to be cut off wasn't necessarily just a physical phrase, right? It was also a way of being separated from a certain party or affiliation, Right, so Paul also in using a tongue-in-cheek expression to say, I wish those who would pervert this new way of Jesus just cut themselves off completely from this whole thing. Go and just go live your miserable little lives, you know? 
cut themselves off completely from what we are trying to do here. But Paul, and kind of telling his letter, I bet he like he really stabbed uh, the the you know period at the end of that statement. He's calmed down a little bit. He turns back to those who would hear him, and this is kind of where we're going to land the plane today. Verse thirteen: For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Freedom, like we know that word, right? Like we, like this, freedom is a very well-used American term. Whether people actually feel it or not in this land. But we mean it mostly in terms of rights, right? I know my rights. I know my freedom of speech, freedom of religion, of press, of assembly, and the right to petition the government, right? In Galatians, though, what does freedom, what did freedom mean to a people in first century A.D. in Galatia? The Greek word for freedom here, I'm going to butcher it, but it's eleutheria, I put it up there. It means liberty, specifically a state of freedom from slavery. Not necessarily based on rights because of birth or nationality or status, but based on freedom from having something over them, right? Remember, Galatia was a Roman province. Was it big bad Rome that they were freed from? Or was it the weight of temple religion that they were freed from? Were they, for, the, for some of the Gentiles, were they freed from some of the horrific pagan practices that they were used to or that their parents still do? Right, even though those are all big deals, Paul is simply pointing them to their own worst enemy, the greatest tyrant in everybody's life, even today, themselves. Right, they have been set free from themselves being Lord, from themselves saving themselves and trying to be like God. Like, we're going right back to page two of our Bibles, right? What was the serpent's lie? God's holding back on you. You could be like God. You could decide for yourself what was good and what was evil, thus enslaving you to serve you. But Jesus came to give a better way. Let go of the hold on your own life. Although you've inherited that same decision to eat of the fruit when you shouldn't have, there's a remaking now in Christ that you could be a part of going back and choosing trust instead of doubt. Let me be your God, and you will be my people. Not only my people, but my children. Not only my children, but my heirs and my firstborn heir of a new creation of promise and blessing. That is the freedom you can inherit. That is the freedom Paul is talking about. It's not something to take for yourself. It's not something to turn and to twist for your own ambition. It's not something to convince yourself you're good because you're better than someone else. It's the freedom of actually getting to a lowly place, acknowledging your sinful state, confessing your desire to be in control, and then releasing it to Jesus, who lovingly revealed this to us in the gospel. This is Mark 8, 35. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. And when people do this, when this is how Christians are made, or I should say, when, when humans are remade as Christians, when we experience God who is love like this in our surrender, and we feel that freedom to no longer be slaves to sin, no longer be slaves to fear, slaves to our vices, like slaves to ourselves, we let that love of God f- overflow out of us, to everyone around us. That's what it's about. That is the marker now of the Christian. The flesh still rears its ugly head, though, doesn't it? Right? Tries to take bites out of yourself, out of people, going back to that animalistic appetite. Next week, we'll dive deep into what that Christian walk should produce and also what we are at war with. But there's a new way available to those who love Him through the Spirit that we now have received. And the Spirit of God is always in and through, internal to produce external, that root to fruit, right? It's always incredible to be here together in this room, encouraging one another as we worship our King in one voice, unified in that mission. But remember, church, it's not just about something for us to receive and then to keep for ourselves. Remember, Paul isn't just writing to individual Christians on how to feel better about their spiritual walk. He's writing to a giant community, all of the churches in Galatia, to remember what they found in Christ and then to look at people differently than them and love them. After all of his brilliant arguments, after all of the rhetoric, Paul still lands on what Jesus taught was the base of following him, love one another. And that is all because of Jesus, and we're going to respond in worship today. But before that, I just want to address anything, anyone in this room that has felt that their Christian walk has felt more like a burden than freedom. I meet with a lot of people, and I've felt it myself, but a lot of times it just feels heavy, feels weighty, right? If you've ever felt like you've been pulling all the way, like you're yoked to Jesus, but like he's dragging you down, right? You're kind of kicking him. Come on, man. All right, Jesus is leaving you out to dry sometimes. If you feel crushed by your sin and the changed behaviors that you've tried over and over again are never enough to get rid of the guilt, I just want to take some time to address that, to kind of sit in silent prayer, not for my words, but for God to speak over us, to allow the grace of Jesus to cover these pain points. They're very real. I truly believe that following Jesus is freedom. It's the most freedom we could ever experience on earth. Then if you have not experienced freedom, then this is the time to surrender that desire to him and allow him to show you where we are striving to create it on our own and not allowing the things to be produced in us that we could never produce in ourselves. So I just want to say a prompt. If you want to close your eyes, go for it. I'm going to say two prompts and leave a, 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 like 30 seconds in between to just allow the Spirit to speak and reveal something. Would you pray with me and then we'll respond. Jesus, as your servant David prayed, Show us any wayward way within us. 
reveal to us today where we are striving for freedom in our own ways, seeing good of what should be evil. Where, God, are we not trusting in you? Would you show us now, God? And God, would you also reveal in a tangible way your goodness to us, your peace, your lightness, the freedom found in you alone and nothing else. We desire to be a people covered by your grace and filled with your love. God, right now, we just, we just open our hearts to you. Will you fill us completely with what you want us to pour out so that we have nothing but you, God? Amen. And that's why we're going to respond. This God is so real, and there is so much freedom, so much freedom in him. And it's a, it's a journey. And if you are still, if you feel that weight, if you feel that burden, um, there's, no, there's no magic pill. There's nothing that I can say or whatever, but, um, but there is relationship. Like, we would love to just get together and talk through that. Some of that is confession. Some of that is just getting it out there. Um, you know, we're not trained counselors, but I'll buy you coffee. <laughs> and we could sit and talk, you know. Um, but a lot of it is that. It's just confessing to God. God, it feels weighty. It feels like this is hard. Why, why, where am I wrong in that? Where is this freedom that I read and I want to claim? You say I can ask anything in your name and you will give it to me. So we claim that freedom. Where is that God? So let's respond to that in prayer. Let's do that with each other individually. Like there's such a beauty in that. And then singing praises. Some of it is just declarative. Sometimes we're just in our own head. You know, this is super, does not matter. I don't even know why I'm saying it. I just came to my head. I play basketball a couple of times a week and my shot is garbage right now. I just am playing terribly and I'm all in my head. I'm thinking about mechanics. I'm like, ah, and I just need to get back to naturally just playing, right? Terrible, terrible thing. Strike that from the record. But <laughs> There's just something about like sometimes we're in our head with God, like, well, if I do this or I don't do this or like, what am I, you know, it's like just, gosh, get back to like you're a human being, not a human doing, right? You just be with God and allow him to show you and to reveal to you the ways that we're, we're not just allowing him to change us. So anyways, uh, and then giving, you guys know we give. We're a community-based thing. Like we want to bless our community. We want to we wanna be able to be a, a community that says yes to things in the city that we can help with, right? And then of course, receiving communion. So we prepared communion and, um, and you know, we'll go to the tables. There's gluten-free and, and go. And when you receive it, just to, that reminder to sit in, like all this is possible. We have the spirit. All this is possible because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, because his body was broken for us. His blood was spilled for us, washing us clean so that he who knew no sin 
became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. And when you sit in that, praise Jesus for that. So you can take it on your own uh, or with your family. Um, So let me pray one more time, and then we'll go into receiving communion.